Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics they talk? We listen. My guest today is the head of a $5 billion global business. With nearly 30 years experience in leadership to include presidential roles, he has played a significant part in the success of a number of global consumer companies. A known expert in strategic partnerships, brand reinvention, executive management and profitable growth, this will be an in-depth conversation about a number of things to include the winning formula on leadership. A fascinating conversation awaits my listeners today, but before we get into that, here's a brief message. This episode is sponsored by Axia. Axia is the leading private cloud platform in the Alessian and Matamos ecosystem, combining intelligent solutions with security and control. Axia's clients profit from digitalization and automation of critical business processes in a cloud and hybrid architecture. 150 staff provide migration, engineering, and support services to over 200 leading organizations in 32 countries. Heads Talk Podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle Schwitter. Bracken Dahl is the president and CEO of Logitech. Under his leadership, Logitech has reinvented itself into an award winning design company, an industry force in pursuing a more sustainable and equitable world and a top performer on the six Swiss Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. Bracken is a proponent of design and liberal arts in business, especially of their role in innovating product experiences for consumers. As a result, Logitech has been the recipient of numerous awards to include more than 200 design awards over the past three years from the likes of IF Design, Red Dot and Fast Company, as well as numerous sustainability awards. Bracken has been named three times in the past four years, the Swiss CEO of the year by Obermatt. To Logitech, he brings nearly 30 years of experience in product, people and brand management through design. He has worked around the world on iconic brands like Old Spice, Gillette and Braun, for which he was the president. Previously in his career, he spent time at Procter & Gamble, Arthur Anderson, PepsiCo, General Electric and Whirlpool. Let's now have a conversation. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Bracken to Heads Talk. Delighted to have you here today. Good morning. It's um, so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Excellent. Right. Um, this episode really reflects what this podcast is all about. And, and that is, it's to get into the minds of C-suite and leaders of multinationals about the current topics of the day in their area of expertise. And we've got a few subjects in your remit that I would like to discuss with you and have you tell my listeners your thoughts in this space. So it really is a fly on the boardroom wall um, episode today. Let's kickstart with this. This is your article on LinkedIn titled, Too Often There's No I in Culture, posted on November the 18th, 2021. I read this um, with interest and trying to understand your thoughts on the, the impact of prioritizing company culture over individual passion, i.e., you know, the prevailing practice in some organizations, many organizations, that the individual should fit into the predefined 
culture of an organization and perhaps as a result forfeit their individualism and passion. You disagree with this and outlined it um, in your thoughts in this article. Incidentally, I'll put a link um, in the episode description for my listeners so they can have a gander at the article itself. Okay, my, my question is, while your article concentrates on the corporate world and you do use strong terms such as culture being indirectly destructive, is this change um, in thinking workable and applicable in today's compulsory education institutions? What are your thoughts on this? I think uh, let me let me let me make a sentence in a sentence or two. Let me summarize my view on this. I think the concept of company culture has gotten so much attention over the past you know twenty five or thirty years, mm-hmm. and it's kind of gone nowhere but straight up and to the right. And I think somewhere along the line, like happens so often with uh, when the, when you swing the pendulum, the pendulum maybe has gone too far mm-hmm. in the direction of the company and not and and not stayed anywhere near the individual. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not against uh, strong company cultures. I'm for the ones that enable strong individuality. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the discussion in, uh, in, in, in DE&I circles today is about the fact that uh, people feel like they have to fit in too much. Mm-hmm. And that's really where I feel the flaw in a lot of cultures could be. Um, and I think in terms of compulsory education or education in general, I think you know there's, there's two roles of education. One is, I guess, maybe more. One of them is to teach content, the other is to, to uh, encourage the right behaviors. And I think that second one is, uh, is tricky, you know, and I think if we go too far in terms mm-hmm. of encouraging behaviors that can be uh, biased or, or stamp out individuality, you lose some of the magic of what makes each one of us uh, unique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the answer is yes, I think it absolutely can be done in the context of compulsory education. I think you just kind of have to unlearn some of the things you've learned. You know, it's really interesting, Elaine, because I think design in a way, if you go back to the beginning of your, of your education, you know, when you're in the first and second and third grade, you're sort of taught to color inside the lines and you're being taught things because you need to be taught um, limits. You know, you need limits to, to be creative sometimes. But I really think when you graduate, you almost need to be retaught how to color outside the lines, at least at some point, maybe, in your, maybe after your first you know, three or four or five years of work. And that's really what design and design thinking is all about. Mm-hmm. And then probably that's where the phrase thinking outside of the box comes from, because presumably before we entered school, we thought outside of the box until we were told to to behave within the box. Um, Yeah, let's talk about the swinging of this pendulum and uh, let's look at it swinging the other way. You know, in your article, you state enabling people to be themselves, pursue their passion, should be the centerpiece of any culture. But can organizations inadvertently go too far the other side and lose their purpose in the drive to cater and rightly um, meet individuals' passion and purpose. Effectively, how do you balance this? I guess it's theoretically possible. I think there are so few organizations that are anywhere near that problem that it's probably not uh, not something most of us need to worry too much about. I, I really think that a, a great company, and I'm, I'm not pretending Logitech's great yet, but we're, we're certainly inspired to be. I think a great company and a great company culture would be one where you declare very clearly what your purpose is and what your values are. Mm-hmm. And then the people who join the company bring their own uh, passion and purpose, sometimes overlapping directly with the company purpose, sometimes not. And if it doesn't, making sure that they have plenty of time on the side to, to, go, after, to, to go after their, their own uh, passions, mm-hmm. or even trying to enable them to bring those passions into work and find a way to make them fit inside the company's own purpose and passion. And, you know, I think that might sound really high level and theoretical, but I believe it's usually doable. 
Hmm. And, I, and I tell you, I think it's magic. And we've all experienced it. Almost everybody's experienced it. It's magic when you bring something you have huge passion about into your job and you, you kind of plug it in. And it's a shocking uh, revelation that most of the time it actually does drive the business forward or drive your, your project forward or whatever. So if you love music, find a way to bring music into your first meeting to get people to unwind. If, you, if you're a basketball fanatic using a, 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 a diagram of how basketball really works and trying to relate it to how your project is going to unfold, you know, those things work. And, uh, and I would encourage everyone to do them no matter what company they're in. Right. Okay. And perhaps maybe you see it as magic because it's not common. It's not. It's not readily common for someone to passions to be able to to marry quite nicely with the organisation they work in. Well, I don't know if you know. I, I I I would say it's magic because I think we rarely talk about it. I think um, I suspect a lot of people do that, and it often works. And it probably happens in companies around the world every day, mm -hmm. but it's not talked about as explicitly and directly as we are now. So I think the magic part is the revelation of, oh my gosh, you know, this really does work. I mean, why don't, why don't we encourage people to do it rather than sort of encourage them to fit into the culture instead? I, th I think the magic part for me is when I read the article and the responses and the comments that you were getting, people were saying, at last, thank goodness that someone in your position is talking about this. So, so that was pretty much the magical part of the whole thing. Uh, just before we move on to the next question, uh, so, so where is Logitech today with the idea of a defined culture? In your article, you talked about open and being yourselves. So, so how would you define Logitech's culture? You know, I've always found cultures very, very difficult to define. I'm sure, I'm sure most people do. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my head of uh, people and culture, as we call as most people call HR. Mm -hmm. uh, when she came into the company, she said, you know, trying to understand your culture is like an archaeological dig. You, you dig deeperly into the past and into the present and you, and you eventually discover what's there. But where we've defaulted is we've said, you know, regardless of where we were, we're going we're gonna, to, rather than describe our culture, we're going to describe what we'd like it to be. So we've, mm -hmm. we've named 10 different uh, words that, that we hope will, over time, more and more represent our culture. And some of them were, were really there. Mm -hmm. No matter where you go in the world, you'll feel it. Things like um, humility. Mm -hmm. um, and then others are very aspirational, you know, and we're not there in most parts of the world, like challenge, mm -hmm. you know, where we challenge each other or, or ask people to challenge ourselves or to challenge us. So, so that's what we've done. That's been our answer. Our, our top two values really are values. The other eight are probably more behaviors that lead to something. Mm -hmm. uh, the top two values are, are, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And uh, and making sure we're helping improve the world, this make it, create a more sustainable world. Mm -hmm. and, and you also talk about the fact that it's not static; it's forever changing, forever morphing according to the outside influences as well. So that that was interesting about that. Um, let's move on and to the next question. On the face of it, this next question may seem like a tech question, but I suspect you might you know take this into a, an interesting direction. It's about the changing reasons, the changing thinking for various tech integration and adoption in, in company operations. Prior to the pandemic, this was, you know, the tech integration and adoption was driven by competitive edge. Today's surveys show that the new driver for this is customer experience. You know, there's a lot of that going on, customer centricity, customer experience focus, customer first, et cetera, et cetera. Is this a great time to be a customer and why? 
it's a it's a wonderfully worded question, and I'm going to give a completely inadequate answer. I think it's um, I do think there's a there's a light that's been slowly getting brighter and brighter uh, towards design. Whether people think about it as design or they think about it as customer first, or you know, putting the customer in the center of what we do, or focusing on the experience of the user. Yeah, but I'm going to use the word design to replace all those. I think the the, the concept of of using design to create things for, for other people really puts the user right in the middle and tries to help you understand the user in a way that they might not understand themselves. And then either logically or creatively try to solve their problems or, or, or delight them. Mm -hmm. And I think that concept of design has been gaining, gaining favor for a long time. If there's a difference now during this pandemic or what will one day I hope be post-pandemic period mm. from the past, it's probably driven by two things. One is time marches on and more and more design is finding its way into more and more companies. So the customer really is put, being put more and more in the center. And the second might be that um, maybe we're more aware of our own, uh, you know, in, in many categories, you're more aware of ourselves, you know, in this pandemic, suddenly it seems like there's been a great awakening in so many different directions, including of our own vulnerabilities and and uh, and maybe that's helped us be more empathetic with users mm -hmm. uh, no i i totally agree with your last point I, I believe that's 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 a large part of the driver in this um let's continue talking about hot topics not just customer experience but this next one is a very hot topic in business today sustainability and all that it entails um let's concentrate purely on logitech with this um what are you doing in your organization that demonstrates your seriousness to meet ESG targets? And what does a climate positive outlook or outcome look like? I see that everywhere when I look at articles about you and written by you or it, climate positive is sort of center of that. What, what does that look like? Yeah, we, we have, we came into this with, uh, you know, I love paradoxes and we make 200, over 200 million physical things a year. Mm -hmm. And so um, one, of the, one of the things I, I wanted to work in a company that's doing good for the world, not less bad. And mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. you know, as I talked to Prakash Arunkundram and Robert Omahani and, and Delphine Croc Dunn and all the, the leaders in my company, I, I, we kept saying, you know, we don't want to be here just trying to make things a little less bad, although that'd be good. We want to make them better. So the only way to make them better is actually to, to in, in, in the case of climate change, is to take carbon out of the air. That's it. You have to be net. You have to be carbon negative to really be making things better, in a in a direct way. You can make them less bad or or moderate the change, but you can't make them really better unless you're climate positive, as they call it, which is which means really taking more carbon out than than you're putting in. Mm -hmm. But we're still going to put carbon in the air when we uh, into the atmosphere when we make things. So how do we do that? We've we've started down that path, and we're we're carbon neutral right now. The way we've done it is we've re, we're redesigning products to reduce the amount of carbon we put out. So we took out sixty thousand, sixty-five thousand tons the first year, seventy thousand tons this year, mm -hmm. and we'll keep ramping it up. So the second thing is we've started planting trees, and there's no mm -hmm. it's no secret that the tree is one of the most effective carbon sinks in the world. There are a lot of others, by the way. A little most people don't realize that a whale is actually a remarkable carbon sink. Mm -hmm. um, and we could talk about that separately, but but trees are a great carbon sink. There are more, and we're we're always in the hunt for more uh, effective and efficient ways to to build uh, ways to pull carbon out of the air. So we're carbon neutral now. Now we're going to keep reducing the amount of carbon output, mm -hmm. the plus carbon into the air through redesigning our products, mm -hmm. all the way through to the next decade. 
And by the end of this decade, we'll be what's called climate positive, which requires, I think, at least a 50% reduction in absolute carbon put into the air, as well as an offset that takes you net negative or net taking carbon out mm -hmm. of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're headed. Uh, that's one of the things we're doing. The second thing we're doing is we feel so strongly about this that we're, we really want to put uh, competitive pressure on ourselves and everyone else in our industry and in all industries by having everybody label exactly how much carbon is going into the air with every single product. Right. So if you, if you, so we've started down that path. We're labeling all our products. We're about 20 in. By the end of, I think, 2025, we'll have labeled 100%. And um, it's, a, it's an accurate calculation. As long as we all use the same standard, it'll be comparable. Mm -hmm. And we're open, we're open uh, to, to give this to light, free license to anyone to use our methodology. We really want to do If there's a better one, we'll move to it. When we started, there were only two companies in the world, or one company in the world doing this. Allbirds had just announced, and we, we followed, and so did Unilever. Now there are more, and we're working with other companies right now who are going to go there. But I think this natural competition that happens when you put something in a box, just like calories did, you know, people, no company is going to sit there and put out the next product that has more carbon output than the last one or has uh, or has more carbon output than a competitive product that, that someone might compare. So we're big fans of this and we're aggressively going after it. Hmm. And you talked about your targets. I think it was, you mentioned 2025. I mean, a lot of organizations have this sort of big magical date of 2030 target. Is there something that you're going to be delivering by 2030? Yeah, we're carbon neutral this year, so done. Yeah, we're absolutely not not we're net zero or not net zero. We're, we're carbon neutral on, on today. Mm -hmm. By twenty thirty one, we'll be what's called climate positive, which means I believe it's a fifty percent reduction in absolute carbon put out, as well as a mm -hmm. offsetting all that to uh, below zero. So that's where that's where we're headed by twenty thirty. I think there are only two companies in tech so far, us and Microsoft, that have announced that that timeline, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and you know, we, uh, it's also important to point out that we are including scopes one, two, and three. And for your audience that doesn't understand exactly what that means, uh, for a company that makes things, scope one or scope one and scope two actually can account for less than you know fifteen or twenty percent of your total carbon output because it doesn't include if you don't own the factories that make your stuff, it doesn't include that. Mm -hmm. If you uh, consumers who use your stuff, it doesn't include all that carbon. So we're including all of it, hundred percent including components and component suppliers, everything. Mm -hmm. Okay, you've, you've answered this next question um, on a sustainability level, perhaps if, if you could answer it on other areas of within Logitech. This is, you know, looking to the future. What should we expect from Logitech in the coming years? You know, we're, our, our explicit mission is to enable all people to fulfill their passions in a way that's good for the planet. I'll say that again, because it's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. enable all people to fulfill their passions in a way that's good for the planet. So we're going to keep bringing uh, products and experiences out that, that first of all, enable people to fulfill their passions. So we make, we're in four broad areas from video connection to every, everywhere in, we believe video will replace audio everywhere, mm -hmm. um, except maybe when you're going for a walk or a run. Um, we believe that gaming will become the biggest collection of sports in the world, bigger than any of the existing you know, professional sports we think about, mm -hmm. uh, both for spectators and participants. We believe that, that hybrid work will enable uh, everyone to work from almost anywhere. It'll be more than just your home, but it certainly will be your home. And the last one is we believe that you'll, we'll all be watching far more content from each other mm -hmm. than we're watching from, from uh, BBC or Netflix mm -hmm. or Amazon. 
because we, we are creating content for each other. So this is already happening and it's going to keep growing at a much faster rate. Netflix and BB and won't slow down, but but we won't we will speak, we will continue to accelerate as more and more people come on board creating content. So we and that's a passion. All those are passions for people. So we want to enable people to fulfill their passions. Well, and a really important word in this is all. We feel like we and, a, and most other companies haven't done a great job uh, serving the underrepresented groups. So we're truly trying to get in the game there and make sure that we're really serving all people. Mm -hmm. And we do mean all. Mm -hmm. And then the last part is in a way that's good for the environment, which we talked about. Yeah. So we'll bring out lots of products and lots of experiences and we'll, you'll see more and more coming from us over time. All right. So, so we've got some exciting things to look forward to in, in your space. Right. I, I want to change the subject now. I want to look at um, leadership now and your thoughts on um, the following. It's about the role, the leadership role post the pandemic. What does that look like and how does it differ from pre-pandemic? And interestingly, what leadership changes have you personally undertaken post the pandemic and why? Yeah, I think I think really, you know, I'm kind of a broken record on this in several directions, but I think the pandemic did did change us a lot. But I believe it just accelerated what was already coming. You know, we probably didn't think about it the way I'm going to describe it, but we already managed um, a free world if we're CEOs or leaders mm -hmm. and and people could were you know I, when I was growing up when I was in high school I was the president of my student body which meant I had 24 people who were popularly elected to be the student council and probably 20 of those didn't really care at all about what we were doing they were just happy to be to win the popularity contest to get on the student council and yeah. I realized somewhere in my late 20s when I had my own team and that actually it's always an all volunteer army. You always have to try to inspire people, get people excited about the, the mission and purpose. And, and, uh, and I think uh, roll forward through the pandemic, I think if we realized anything, you know, in this hybrid world, it's pretty easy to change jobs. It's pretty mm -hmm. easy to do two jobs at once and try out something new. And I'd encourage anybody to do that if they want to, and uh, including in our company. And, it's, and, uh, and so you're running an all volunteer army. You just don't realize it. So I'd say the role of leadership in a post pandemic world is to continue to create a clear sense of purpose and attract the, those who are passionate about what they do to your company and mm -hmm. uh, and make sure that your company is a place to work where people feel like they can have a, an amazing life, not just uh, a good job. Mm -hmm. and it's probably That's probably more true post-pandemic by a factor of three or four than it was pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. And how has it changed you? You know, I've learned so much during this pandemic period. It's incredible how much I've learned within the last 18 months about myself. I'm, uh, I've always been probably on, on the face of it fairly humble, but boy, I realized how little I knew about so many things, you know, starting with uh, DE and I, you know, I thought I was one of the good guys in the pre George Floyd world where I fretted over every awful thing that happened to any, you know, BIPOC person, including uh, Rodney King back in the nineties. Mm -hmm. But I realized I hadn't used my platform to really speak up about uh, racism, and and in that in that case, American racism. And I and I, you know, so it was like a frying pan of the head. I felt like you know, gosh, I was like one of those business leaders in South Africa during apartheid. Where was I? You know, yeah. so I've tried to change that. But you know, that's just a microcosm of all the things I've learned. I've learned so much about my leadership. I thought I was the master at creating psychological safety, making a place where you really felt safe at work. I realize I'm pretty average. I've got a lot of work to do on myself. 
thought I was a good coach just because I was a good athlete and I always played sports and people, I was a natural leader. Mm -hmm. I realized I didn't do a lot of coaching. I just kind of gave people the problems and, and left them alone and then intervened when I felt like I needed to. So I've learned so much about myself and all those are probably a reflection of being you know, more reflective in a world where you're by yourself a lot, you know, mm. whether you're on Zoom or not. Mm. And, and, and I, think you, I think you need to hold that thought because the next question pretty much touches upon some of the stuff that you said your eyes were open to, so to speak. Um, it's, it's about diverse teams. Um, that's a very hot topic today. Um, as you said, post the George Floyd incident. Um, what does that bring to the table? And can you tell me of your experiences with and without diverse teams and decision makers on the executive table? Yeah, the murder, the murder of George Floyd was such a turning point for so many uh, of us, you know, in, in, in leadership and in the world. I mean, in the United States, at all levels, I mean, all, probably all over the world. Um, I think it, it was uh, a watershed moment, maybe the most transformative moment in my life. It was four or five days after it happened at my kitchen table that it really, this whole thing kind of appropriately crashed down on my head and, and hurt like crazy and continues to and should. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not about what's happened in the world. It's about why I didn't do more about it a lot earlier. So I think now if I reflect back, I'll, I'll, there are all kinds of diversity, but I'll focus on the, the one that every single person on this call can relate to, which is being around people like you, mm -hmm. you know, and, and not just people who might look like you, but people who might think like you. I'll remember, I'll never forget I had a job one time where uh, the entire team was very similar in there their way of kind of decision-making, whatever, you know, whatever personality test you took and we didn't take one, I would guess we'd all fall in the same quadrant or the same bubble, you know, or whatever it is, an ENTJ or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was amazingly exciting because we would make decisions so fast. I mean, we, things would come into the group and we, we'd talk about them for, you know, literally five minutes, everybody would align and we'd just go. That was the first time in my life I experienced that. And it was the single most terrifying um, period I think I've ever had because that, that was a really raw, pure look at what, and by the way, that was an all white group, mm -hmm. a few women, mostly men. And it was, a, it was a really clear look at how you could potentially run a company right off a cliff if you have a lack of diversity. And uh, we didn't run off the cliff, but we're, that was probably because several of us got moved into other jobs pretty quickly after that. Mm -hmm but I never forgot it. I don't think I did enough about it. I was focused, focused a lot on gender diversity, but now I'm really focused on all kinds of diversity. And I realize, boy, you know, it's so impossible to really sympathize with anyone else that if you don't have a diversity of, of as many types you can on your, on your team, mm -hmm. you're just going to miss the conversation. You better go out and find it somewhere if you don't, mm -hmm. so that you make sure you engage other people who see things differently than you do. Mm. And so, what do you think other leaders in your position should do to address this current situation that they're not doing? What do you think they should be doing? What's the start? How do they go about starting to do things like that? You know, I think there are two steps. Neither is easy that every leader, every CEO should be doing. And if, you, if you, you're not a CEO, but if you're a leader of something, you can think about well, how this applies to you because it does. Two steps. Number one, Build diversity, equity, and inclusion into your purpose. Not a value, purpose. Put it into the purpose statement. Nothing will send a stronger message to the rest of the organization that you're serious than that. 
And it's a really, frankly, it's a fairly easy step. Most purpose statements are pretty bland. They all sound, you know, they're, they're probably 10 different varieties you can come to and they're just worded a little differently. So by doing that, you will make the strongest statement you could possibly make about how, how, how much, how intentional you want to be about it. Mm -hmm. Second, the second thing you could do is train and that's even harder. It's much harder because just finding great people who can do your training is not easy. But finding a way and a path, there are lots of different ways you can train. You can start with, uh, as we are, with psychological safety, or you can start with anti-racism, which we've done a little of. But get view this as a curriculum that's going to go on for the rest of your career and the rest of the company's life, probably. The, 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 uh, the, the, the pages of diversity, equity, and inclusion to learn and the behaviors to change are so deep and so broad that it's, a, it's going to be uh, an encyclopedia, not a pamphlet. So those are the two things that I think every single leader should do. And, I, and I'll address one barrier to that. There's one primary barrier to that, which is CEO conviction. If a CEO doesn't have enough conviction, neither one of those is happening. And, the, and so you could ask yourself, if you're not the CEO, how do I create conviction in my CEO? And I don't know the answer to that, but it's probably through um, continuously raising it in, in different ways, from different angles, from different people. You know, I hope one day that, you know, the vast majority of CEO, majority of CEOs, and I think a lot have, by the way, have the same conviction that, that, that I think I do about it. But I hope more and more will feel super strong conviction about this. And I think they will. Mm. It, it's the classic, it has to be driven from the top uh, and commitment from the top in order for it to succeed. Um, my final question on this episode of Ed's Talk is firmly about you and what you will leave behind when you do decide to hand over the reins to another individual. Do you want your legacy to be? I'm really not about building a legacy. I'm totally about the future. So everything I do, you know, when I, when I grew up, uh, my mom and dad divorced when I was very young. I was about nine or 10. My, my mom kind of fell apart. You know, I had four car wrecks in one year. And, and uh, she used to use me and probably my siblings too, although we never talked about it, as her psychiatrist or psychologist, therapist. And she'd come home and talk about things. And she'd very often dwell on the things that, that she wondered if she shouldn't have done. And she'd question it. And, and I, I finally developed this uh, analogy. And I said to, I said, mom, you know, you need to act like you're standing on a beach. You got a stick in your hand and you drag that stick behind your heels. And everything behind that stick is over. Your whole life is right in front of the stick all the way out. So everything that's behind you is just to learn from. And, um, and so I've, I've can, maybe I've talked myself into that belief so much that I don't care about a legacy at all. I care about making sure that people are constantly growing and learning and that the organization and the people there are ready for the next act, whatever that is. And you know, if you would call it a legacy, I'm about the legacy of the next thing, not the, the thing that's past. Brecken Darrell, what a very interesting conversation today on Heads Talk. Many thanks for your time and insights. Thanks so much, Elaine. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk Podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.